In order to fight monsters, we had to build monsters of our own. Welcome to Tetra Podcats. I'm Podcat John Conway and I'm with Podcat Darren Nash. But yeah, let's, should we get going? Yes. Um, well, that's my job, isn't it? Yes, that's, that's for you at your end. <laughs> what did I say? What did I say? What are we doing? Okay, so general chit-chat. Mm. Chit-chat. Chit-chat. Um, Have you heard about the night parrot? No. Oh, night, the night parrot is like, you know, a, a famous recently, possibly extinct Australian small budgie-like outback dwelling greenish uh, parrot and there are is it's people have there have been like a handful of of kind of anecdotal accounts s- suggesting this animal might still be around there was a a dead one uh, a, a fresh juvenile found a couple of years ago there is a tetrapod zoology article about about that bird um and um so people have you know is this is this bird still still extant? We can now say yes, it definitely is because a live one has just been photographed, and the um, the photo is now online. It appeared um, in a Australian newspaper. I've forgotten the name of it. Australian News or something. Um, heavily watermarked, so you, can, you, you can, it's crazy what they did to sort of prevent this image from being leaked and used elsewhere. But um, but yeah, it's definitely the real deal. So um, this the, the night parrot is still extant. We can say for definite. And so thank you to Mark Carter for um, uh, mentioning that in the in the tweets. He also he also alludes to this really interesting um, sort of uh, pseudo conspiracy where apparently people have been reporting. There are so I mentioned there are a few accounts of this animal that have been made within recent years, recent decades. But apparently there's. Uh, more sightings than have been released because there's there's been like a, a deliberate effort to keep them quiet and to, to not let the word out that this bird is still extant. And I don't know whether that's through people that want to keep this quiet for reasons of the bird's welfare and conservation or whether it's, you know, sometimes people deliberately don't want um, uh, the existence of an animal in a given area to be publicised because it might interfere with, you know, development or the, the, use, the use of the land, that, that kind of stuff. I don't yeah, know what the story is. it could be a pain in the neck. Well, it could be, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what the deal is there. Sorry, how long has it me- meant to have been extinct? Well, uh, having done this without any preparation whatsoever, uh, mentioned this without any preparation whatsoever, I'm, I can't remember. I'm going to try and find the uh, <laughs> <laughs> try and find the article I did, and um, uh, then I'll then I'll be armed with all the appropriate facts. Hey, we could actually cut out this whole bit, making me look really clever. So it was discovered in uh, in 1845, named in 1861, uh, and then by the early 20th century, it, it, sightings had trailed off. It was thought to have become extinct by about 1912. But um, there are a series of sightings, about 20 sightings, that were recorded as recently as the 1970s. So people were still thinking that this thing is, is still around. You know, it's basically similar to like the thylacine, you know, the Tasmanian tiger. There's this, and it has been referred to as such by some authors. 
1989, a $25,000 reward, or in, according to some sources, a $50,000 reward was offered by a millionaire, an Australian millionaire called Dick Smith. If someone could actually prove that the Night Parrot's still around, they would get this, um, get this uh, a reward. And a paleoornithologist who's quite well known, if you know anything about fossil birds, a guy called um, Walter Bowles, he actually did discover a squashed dried dead one in 1990 in, in Queensland so that indicated that these animals are these are these are still around I, I don't actually know if Walter Bowles got the uh, $25,000 or $50,000 um, reward and then there's this second Ed Smith yeah. <laughs> you, you, only Australians get that joke he he ran a chain of electronics called Dick Smith but the logo was Dick and then they had a picture of his head and then Smith <laughs> So it's known as Dickhead Smith. He's actually a pretty good guy. He um sold he sold that electronics chain and it became a disaster afterwards. But um, yeah, he's he's quite into science and well, exactly. And, he can't be all bad if he's, he's offering a philanthropist. Yeah. The, no, he's well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's interesting. And um, I I wonder if that money was ever claimed. Um, but yeah, then this this second specimen found in. Is, do you know if it said Diamantina or Diamantina National Park, in Queensland? Did, I don't know. No, I, I only I only recognise the name because there's a dinosaur named after it. There's a a sauropod called Diamantinosaurus. But um, anyway, that's where this this other dead night parrot was found, 2006. And both this one and the 1991, they both seem to have died through collisions. This one was a collision with a fence. The 1991 was was collision with a with a vehicle. Um, and there's an, actually an, an interesting message in there, which is that rare birds are often in trouble through. Uh, accidents this is on my mind right now because of this um the big thing that everyone's been talking about in the british birding community is this white-throated needletail swift that was flying around in the hebrides it's like, it's only like a third british record twitchers from all over the country you know flock to the hebrides to see it and it's oh wow oh my god it's a, it's it's the white-throated needletail it's so beautiful Zzz, flies into a wind turbine <laughs> <laughs> very sad and uh, a massive unprecedented outpouring of grief for this beautiful bird and, and, a, and a, a lot of ranting and anger about um, the uh, the green energy movement and about wind farms and wind turbines and oh that. don't get me started on that yeah that's yeah let's not do that now but, uh, but anyway yeah so <laughs> so, so night parrots night yeah, parrots sorry i mean it is in the name but are they nocturnal yeah they yeah, are not eternal, yeah. Which explains or, why they can still have a breeding population and be relatively obscure, right? Yeah, well, you know, think about it. It's a very small, green, desert-dwelling, buddy-shaped bird. So some people think that, in actual fact, it's been seen fairly often. Most people that see it don't recognise it. Don't know what it is, yeah. What it is. And if you see these things at dusk or at dawn, or if, the, you know, who's out at night in the middle of the desert, you know, the odd trucker and farmer and stuff... They um they do sometimes report these sightings, but other times the sightings aren't good enough to be definitive and just the luck of the draw. Mm. So um so having having all said, you know, the, the main message that's obviously coming through from this is that oh great news, the night parrot is still extant, it is still around. But on the other hand, there's often the the downside to this is well, just because you found one doesn't actually mean that the species is okay. It doesn't mean that the ecosystem it inhabits is okay. And uh, an animal can still be around, but still be critically, you know, in uh, in trouble. And sometimes you can even have a small number of individuals, but they're not going to perpetuate the species. So it's as good as functionally extinct anyway. And we don't, we just don't know what the story is with the night parrot at the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to uh, your horrible errors. Oh, my horrible errors. What you yeah. mean? Um, I, when we were talking about Man of Steel, and yeah. it's not it's not Superman Man of Steel. It's just Man of Steel, which I have now seen. I thought it was, I really really liked it. It's an awesome film. I referred to General Zod as General Zog, but you know that was a, that was a deliberate joke for the fans. I also uh-huh. referred to uh, Superman's red underwear, and as Mike Keezy, who's an expert on these things, as he tells us, <laughs> Superman in Man of Steel doesn't wear red undergarments anyway so that you know we were we were going off on a tangent there that we didn't need to um doesn't he oh he's still he's still wearing the outside underwear isn't he well i don't know i i don't i mean mike was very kind enough to to link to some illustration of uh um Kal-El in uh full splendor in in man of steel but um he doesn't they've taken it off yeah there you go Wow. Yeah, so we went off on a bit of a tangent there. We have had a lot of people telling us that this is based on Victorian strongmen. Ah, that's what I said. <laughs> is it? <laughs> I must have cut that out. I said it to I, I said it to my dad in a car, in the car. I don't remember if I said it on the podcast. Yeah. Yes. Clearly you would have and it was just my stupid mistake. Yeah. Mm, um, that was- you edited that bit out. Yeah. 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 yeah, sorry about that. Um so yeah, that makes sense. You wonder why they did it, but I think well I think it was to show off, you know, big muscly legs and stuff, wasn't it? It was yes. to, to kind of to, to be kind of scantily clad and to, to show off contours of their bodies. But um anyway, moving yeah. on, other mistakes. Um there are more, but I've forgotten them because I don't have them in front of me. Yeah. Like an idiot. I can't think of anything serious. No. We never get... We we always get corrections on things which... Um, we don't know anything about anyway. <laughs> we don't know anything about anyway, which is not really surprising. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, no more mistakes. We're practically perfect. Yeah. Do you think we should um, be more professional the way, in we do, the way in which we do these podcasts? I mean, should they be more... Because people say they like it. They like the messing around and the sort of silliness. and So I think we should stick with that. If I had to be more professional, I wouldn't bother doing it. Okay, fair I don't enough. know about you. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, it's, this is the only way it's going to work, isn't it? There's... It is. And yeah. people do like it. And it's the sort of podcast I like to listen to anyway. Yeah. So. It's just, I, I'm harking back to like the, the prequel episode or one of the, one of the earliest ones we did where we said, right, let's go through everything on Tetravodzology. Okay, let's talk about glass frogs. Blah, 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 spoke about glass rocks. Let's talk about petrols. Blah, 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 spoke about petrols. And so on and so forth. I don't know if yeah. we're drifting away from that. or. Uh... Well, I think, I think we had too many topics in the first one. So I think yeah. it's good to have some topics lined up, yep. as I have this time, being the super professional that I am. Hey. So I thought I'd talk, we'd talk a bit about mesosaurs, because mm. you've had them on Tetsu. But also I want to talk about more generally... Um, the return to the water in tetrapods, which I, I think is quite an interesting topic yes. just to, to shoot the breeze on that. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about mesosaurs. Okay, um, so yeah. People do complain about this, recapping things that are on Tetsu, but I say, well, you know what, you can sit through you can sit through three minutes of Darren recapping it. Um, <laughs> you'll sit uh, there and you'll like it. <laughs> yeah, you'll sit there and you'll like it. <laughs> I mean... Three minutes of listening to something you already know is not like the most uh, 
horrible thing in the world. And there's yeah. lots of people that listen to the podcast who haven't necessarily read everything on Tetsu, so... Yeah, stupid listeners. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Screw you all! <laughs> so Mesosaurs are a, a group of relatively small and fairly obscure Permian aquatic or amphibious um, reptiles or near reptiles. And because they're from the Permian, so that's the kind of, you know, the span of time before the Mesozoic starts between about, I don't know, 290, at a guess, 290, 250 million years ago, that kind of time frame. Um, Mesosaurs are the first group of amniotes, so the tetrapods that have an amniotic sac, an amniotic egg, they're the first group of amniotes to... Um, to take to uh, aquatic life. And mesosaurs, uh, they sort of got like a, a broad sculling tail and they've got flipper-like limbs. They've got a, a long, fairly slender snout. And the best known of them, there's, there's not many taxa, but the best known of them, mesosaurus has got numerous slender pointed teeth that have sometimes been suggested to have like a filter feeding, uh, suspension feeding um, role. Though whether that's true or not is subject to debate. Not, not very big, 30 centimetres to 70 centimetres, that kind of size. And they've generally been thought of as coastal um, marine animals, so living in shallow seas just off the coast. But um, a, a new study published uh, last year from a site in Uruguay that yields numerous mesosaur fossils showed that the mesosaurs there, this particular site in, in what's now Uruguay, they were actually inhabiting a hypersaline lagoon. And the only other animals in the lagoon were uh, a group of very specialised, peculiar, extinct crustaceans. The name of which I've forgotten, pygocephalomorphs or something along those lines. They're not tetrapods, we don't need to worry about They're not about tetrapods, them. exactly. So um, that raises the possibility that maybe some or perhaps all mesosaurs were actually lagoon dwelling specialists, specialised for this hypersaline conditions, which are extremely uh, salty water is often quite a difficult environment for you know any animal to make a living in and a couple of unusual features of the mesosaur skull, including like an extra opening posterior to the nostril and uh, a, an extra a structure on the palate, they've been suggested to be accessory salt-secreting organs. So maybe they had to like get rid of a lot of salt out of their body. The coolest thing that we've learned about mesosaurs recently is that is we now have numerous babies and or embryos. And this is what I decided to cover in this um, Tetsu article. This is a, it's a new thing. Um, it's one of those papers. It, it ended up in a journal called Historical Biology. But... Um, I happen to know that it's it's such like a, a gee whiz discovery that the authors had initially like tried you know the the glamour mags the the big journals and were unsuccessful there as are I don't know what ninety percent or whatever of all uh, papers that, that try for those journals and the the um. The, the the babies or embryos they it's not clear whether the um, babies were in shelled eggs or whether they were born live and just in a membrane because there's only one specimen that's there's one specimen that's um inside the body of a parent and it's um it's it shows that there was a that they gave that they produced a, relative, a very low number of babies you know like one or two babies which is always interesting because it's suggestive of some degree of parental care, you know, a substantial amount of maternal investment in the baby. And it's not clear. There's no evidence for eggshells. So does it mean that the baby was born live or does it mean it just had a membrane or was there an eggshell present and it was like really, really thin? We, we actually don't know. In the, the site that's got numerous babies, a lot of them are, and I'm saying babies because we don't know whether they were embryos, whether they were aborted embryos or whether they were free swimming juveniles. But 
a significant percentage of them are like right next to the adults, literally preserved right next to adults, more so than is plausible according to chance. So again, this suggests either that they are aborted embryos or that this is evidence of some kind of parental care. So um, um, I don't know what you would necessarily predict about ancestral reproductive modes down right at the base of amniota or reptilia, but um, um, it's interesting that we have this like production of a very small number of juveniles and this possible possible evidence for parental care in these animals uh, in, seem, in that part, part yeah, of the paper. Yeah, very interesting, yeah. Um, yeah. Also, obviously, already really pretty specialised aquatic animals, right? If the, yeah. Especially if this uh, salt glands and this sort of thing pans out. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know that you would, again, if we didn't have these fossils, would we predict that there was, that this group of animals would exist in the part of the clade and where we think they go? We We think that they... So within amniota, there's like a divergence into synapsids, which include mammals and all their extinct relatives, and um, reptiles. And uh, mesosaurs don't seem to be on the synapsid branch. Are they outside of the clade that includes synapsids and reptiles, or are they early members of the reptile clade, or are they actually sort of within the reptile clade and perhaps within reptilia part of or especially close to parareptiles this clade I mean, we mentioned them last time didn't we that um that include a whole bunch of quite quite a increasingly diverse group but most famous for its stocky bodied um chunky limbed herbivores like the pariasaurs and uh procolophenoids and, and various other groups and compared to early synapsids parareptiles early reptiles mesosaurs they're kind of surprising, you know, long, slender snouts, all these teeth and, and, and aquatic, possibly marine habits. They're, um, yeah, they, they, they are weird. But so far as we can tell, you know, from all the characters that we, we can observe in their skeletons, that is where they go. They don't, they aren't diapsid reptiles. They're not deeply nested within reptilia. They're, um, they're not synapsids. Yeah. They're their own special little thing. They're their own special thing. This early experiment in taking to, aquatic life and whether that means marine or lagoonal or you know something to do with the marine realm yeah when did they go extinct well they're only a permian event but i don't oh, know so. yeah i don't know whether they persist up to the very end of the permian but, yeah. um not sure so yeah just more generally how many off the top of your head are tetrapods have are secondarily aquatic do you think? Te oh the whole of tetrapoda off the top of my head yeah. i'd say like you know 15 to 20 lineages and that may be incorrect and it also depends on what degree of um aquatic you know what degree of aquatic adaptation do you accept before you regard something as like properly properly aquatic or not because if you mean yeah. things that yeah I, I mean i'm thinking of things that are obviously dedicated to aquatic life they've got flipper like limbs or you know they they swim with their paddle like tails or whatever then then yeah, you know, ichthyosaurs and cetaceans and pinnipeds and blah, blah, blah. Um, but of course, you know, it, it, there's numerous other groups that just dabble at the water's edge or wade or... Uh, or even swim long distances but don't have um, specialist mm. adaptions. Like well, exactly. Polar yeah, because yeah, exactly, the number goes up once you bring those kinds of things into it because there are, there are swimming, you know, rodents and uh, uh, members of the shrew family and moles and all, you know, loads, loads of things. And, 
and even animals that rely on water entirely as, as a resource but don't don't have swimming adaptations i mean you know like birds and bats that catch things from the water surface and um there's what a lot I, of that as well what i find interesting about this is that these are obviously reinvading a bunch of ecological circumstances that are already filled by other animals right um well not particular niches necessarily but you when you're when you're going back into the ocean you're competing with a whole bunch of fish right yeah, I find it interesting that tetrapods seem to be not only successful at this, but keep doing it over and over and over again, and and several very successful lineages, right? Mm. I mean, look at marine reptiles, Mesozoic marine reptiles, and and uh, marine mammals these days. They're tremendously successful, aren't they? Yes. Even though it's obvious that they've got a a fairly big disadvantage in that they have to breathe air. And I'm wondering what advantages tetrapods bring that allows them to do this. Yeah, or think? is it that... Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, sorry. I was actually asking, what do you think about that? Well, well, I was going to say, or is it that they don't necessarily have an advantage, but that there's enough, you know, ecological space, there's enough resource for groups to move in. and be, Because sharks, advanced sharks, have been around since... Certainly, the start of the Mesozoic. You know, there are there are Triassic and Jurassic sharks that, in the basic body shape, are like you know proper advanced, fast swimming, open water sharks. And yet, ichthyosaurs, um, cetaceans, various other groups, yeah, are, are clearly doing the same thing. And and in a sane world, you would think that well, you know, the sharks are doing the shark thing. So. We're, if 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 we if if this was a speculative zoology project, you wouldn't say there's a bunch of sharky things already. Like we don't need any more shark stuff. Yeah, we've done that. <laughs> but that's really not how it worked. These ichthyosaurs and thalatosaurs and hoopasuchians and, uh, and and cetaceans much much later on. Yeah, clearly did the exact, pretty much the same thing. You know, ichthyosaurs and cetaceans are both shark mimics. So is it that there's actually enough space in ecosystems for yeah groups to the sea is a big place, and you know, is 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 that the key here? That there's enough resource base, enough enough physical space for animals to 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 move in. But you'd still think sharks would outcompete them if they didn't have some other advantage to make up for their air breathing weakness. Yeah, and and reproductive weakness too. I mean, once when you're getting started, right? Uh, especially for reptiles, um, you have to evolve special ways of reproducing don't you yeah 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 so, so an interesting thing we see in in marine tetrapods uh in the ones that become dedicated to marine life is that the the key features that allow them to become pelagic open ocean animals are evolved the, the key features i think are evolved really early on at small body stage and at small body size and presumably in the stage of, apparently in the stage of their evolution where they are shallow water coastal or estuarine animals so i mean things like the ability to control salt uh, salt concentrations the ability to give birth to to live babies the ability to like um, control uh, buoyancy uh, that, that kind of stuff all those things are evolved at small body size early on that's the case for mosasaurs, for ichthyosaurs. Um, for we've just discovered that charist, well, recently discovered that charistodeers were viviparous, and you know at least some of them may have been marine. And um, so, do these do these groups um, get this like key set of marine adaptations early on when they're not competing 
with like big pelagic predators and and only then can they actually get then they're sort of like on on almost an, an equal footing i i don't know but um i've been trying to think if there's like a, a physiological advantage as well for for um yeah as far as we know what what are the metabolisms of a lot of these big aquatic tetrapods are they um oh, aquatic tetrapods in general are they are they generally warm-blooded or are they um Mm. Mm. I, said, I don't know whether we know for lots of them, do we? Well, we can't ever, obviously, obviously controversies about the physiology of extinct animals continue unabated. <laughs> but but there, is, there are various good reasons for thinking that the mesozoic marine reptiles, so basically ichthyosaurs, but possibly mosasaurs, possibly plesiosaurs, maybe they were actually endothermic. Now, discussing... Physiology, oh, such a big, messy subject, and I, I don't really like doing it because I never, never really feel comfortable. You know, don't think I know enough about it. But there's endothermy just by you know animals are endothermic just because they're big, because obviously able to retain heat. The, the gigantothermy sort of argument that people that people use mm -hmm. that that does that's got to apply for like big big reptiles. Um, so a, a big reptile that's Physiologically, still much like a smaller reptile, it's probably able to, you know, be okay in like kind of cool waters. But we also have good reasons for thinking. We we also have good reasons for thinking that um, that certainly ichthyosaurs and possibly mosasaurs and plesiosaurs as well. Maybe they were actually physiologically endothermic as well, actually able to generate um, generate and retain uh, heat within organs and muscles and such. There's work done on. Um, oxygen isotopes i think which indicates they had like high stable body temperatures um and there does seem to be there's some controversial evidence indicating that certainly ichthyosaurs uh, and maybe plesiosaurs too were living in you know like properly cold seas where there were like icebergs and and stuff i mean this is this is debated but um yeah, yeah. maybe they were truly warm-blooded so this could be one advantage that tetrapods bring to uh, bring to oceans. Well, yeah, but the complication here is that is this an advantage over if again if we're mostly talking about sharks as the main competitors because sharks are endothermic too. The um, not all of them, but the lamnids, the group that includes great white and mako sharks, they are truly endothermic, and so are. Um, scombroids, this is the group of bony fishes that includes billfishes, as in sailfish, swordfish, marlin, and tuna. The, the, those are all endothermic as well. So mm. they have they have heat generating organs in their body core and sometimes sometimes in their, their eyes and their brains. Having hot eyes and hot brains apparently increases your uh, you know ability to transmit um, um, you know message via nerves and uh, increases nerve speed and all that sort of thing so um i don't know yes it does seem to be a bit of a general mystery doesn't it um, and also don't and don't forget as well that some of those big fishy things sharks in particular are um very you know they're not that different physiologically from they're not they're not sorry they're not that different in terms of like reproductive biology from animals like reptiles as in they produce a really low number of babies They've got a very slow reproductive turnover um you know lamnids again are are viviparous they give birth to like you know a really low low number of juveniles um they're very slow their populations are very slow to recover from uh 
extinct, uh, you know, traumatic events, which is kind of why they're screwed by us because we are killing them faster than they can replace themselves. They're not broadcast spawners that produce millions and millions of eggs like lots of bony fish. Mm. So, so yeah. yeah. So the answer is we've got no idea really, huh? <laughs> the world is complicated. <laughs> the world is yeah, complicated. well, I, you, I think what I find particularly interesting about this is that it hasn't just happened once. It's not it's just one group got lucky, managed to accrue enough um, adaptations to make it, and then has hence diversified. It, it's happened dozens and dozens of times, hasn't mm, it? Well, yeah. Dozens. Um, yeah. So it's clearly something that's well, not necessarily easy to do, but there's something that makes it happen and it's and it's broadly spread across tetrapods as well there's lots and lots of different tetrapods that have done it huh yes yeah well i'm not uh, yeah 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 well yeah there are obviously you can think of no, plates that haven't but, there um, are because well yeah because i was just going to start talking about marine amphibians because i was thinking that we were talking about amniotes instead of all tetrapods but um yeah yeah plenty of other groups that are there's a whole bunch of uh the marine temnospondyls, animals that conventionally would have been regarded as, you know, classically referred to as amphibians, some of mm. which were kind of, again, sort of ichthyosaur-shaped, long-snouted, flippered, sculling tails um, back in the uh, Pomo-Triassic. And uh, people have even suggested at times that they were ichthyosaur ancestors, which they're clearly not. But, um, yeah, so it's all over the shop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Good old tetrapods. They're better than the other sorts of animals. I think that's what's going on. They're just morally superior. I, I, can't, I can't help thinking that the, the basic answer to why does this keep happening when there are already sharks and fishy things is because they can, because the world, because the world is big enough. There's, there's like space. Because um, I think things that tetrapods do that non-tetrapods can't, it's really hard to think of anything that, that really sticks. I mean, herbivory is the thing that comes to mind. You know, there are Cyrenians and this extinct group called the Desmostylians, which are marine herbivores. And that's not really something that non-tetrapods have ever really gone in for. There aren't, there aren't, are there any marine herbivorous fish? I know there are freshwater herbivorous fish. There are piranhas and such that, that eat nuts and fruits and things. But, um... My understanding but, is that the energy base there isn't huge, right? So it's not a big, big niche. What, in terms of eating marine algae? Uh, I don't know. Well, there's planktonic algae, but not... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I believe that's what ocean... Oh, God, we're giving me trouble. But that's. I'm pretty sure that's what ocean ecosystems are based on, right? It's, plank, it's plankton, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's... Well, that, that you mentioning uh, plankton, planktonivory, that's an interesting thing because cause it seems that the, the sort of relay race that's run between uh, planktivores, planktivorous vertebrates, doesn't give you any real strong indication that, like, fish are better than this... are better at this than tetrapods because in the Mesozoic, we now know there's a whole radiation of big... Now, I always, always, always confuse filter feeding and suspension feeding. They're different, and I can never remember which is which. So I'm just going to refer to them as planktonids as I can't remember which is which. Never, never, ever can. But we know that in the Mesozoic, there's a whole radiation of plankton-eating bony fish, the pachycormids, and they're definitely present throughout the 
Jurassic and all the way in, in the Cretaceous up to the, the very latest Cretaceous. And so far as we know, there aren't any plankton-eating marine reptiles. There's also whale sharks and manta rays and basking sharks and megamouth sharks that possibly possibly originated in the later part of the Cretaceous and was certainly present in the early part of the Cenozoic. Then in the Cenozoic, you have all those lineages, basking sharks, manta rays, megamouth, you have them surviving up to the present, obviously. But then also you have baleen whales uh, starting in the Oligocene and obviously persisting to the present. And baleen whales are like, you know, moving in on the same niche that basking sharks, megamouths and such do. But there are more baleen whales in terms of species and presumably individuals than there are basking sharks and megamouths and blah, blah, blah. So, again, it's like there's no, there's no clear indication. So far as I know, there's no clear indication from the fossil record that, you know, one group is able to, like, oust another. And that's, it was a big controversy, of course, as to whether that happens anyway. Some people have said that, you know, interactions happen at the level of species and not within the level of like entire clades of hundreds of species. You know, that's not how ecosystems, that's not how competition works. Well, I, I don't know what to think because I'm mm. not seeing, I'm not seeing any pattern here. I'm, I'm yeah, basi- there is no pattern. I'm, yeah. yeah. Basically seeing that, you know, whenever a group becomes specialized for aquatic or marine life, I'm not saying that they're all destined to succeed because obviously many, many of them are extinct, but it's like there aren't, yeah what what's <laughs> i i don't i'm sorry i i don't know i don't know where to go next but it does seem that yeah if you if you want to if you want to strike out into the marine realm if you want to start swimming around and catching fish fine you do that you know no one's going to stop you it doesn't matter that there's like twenty five thousand fish species out there. <laughs> they don't mind yeah come on the more the merrier it's a big old place it's a big old sea lots of space yeah <laughs> give us your give us your thalatosaurs and your cetaceans and your Desmostylians and whatever else as well, we're fine. Yeah. Ah, well, we don't need to because, you know, we've kind of run out of time on that. So have you not seen any good films recently? I have not yet seen Pacific Rim. Ah, Pacific Rim. It comes out on July 12th in both the US and the UK at least. I don't know about the rest of the world, but um, I can't wait. Really can't wait. Look, so looking forward to it. Ah, uh, yes. Why? Uh, kaiju. I love anything to do with kaiju. It, um, it, it looks great. I mean, the, the effects look great. The creatures look great. The the Jaeger, the Jaegers, which are the giant, you know, robot suits that we use to humanity uses to battle kaiju, looks cool. And of course, that you know, we can't mention it without saying there's this big thing. There's this big campaign right now to try and get the moronic proletariat to realize that it's not Godzilla versus Transformers, which seems to be kind of like a, a main thing. This, this is coming from um, Guillermo del Toro, the guy who gave us Pan's Labyrinth and, and Hellboy and stuff. It's not going to be some, it's not, it's not Transformers. It's not a Michael Bay movie. Um, it's it's got to have depth to it. It's got to have like, you know, characters and, and people in it and stuff and, and I don't care what you say. I can see what you're going to say. Say it anyway. Okay. Look, Here we go. I haven't seen it. And obviously, I just I watched all the trailers and all the little interviews and stuff that they've got on their YouTube channel. And I'm willing to admit that it will probably be better than Transformers. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but, and here's the thing, 
it's not going to be that much better than Transformers. And yes, it is Transformers <laughs> versus Godzilla. That's exactly no! what it is. Don't and listen to I, it. What I object la, to is la, this la, whole la. notion that nerds, sorry, geeks, <laughs> seem to have got into, that this is some serious cultural event that the proletariat don't understand. They don't understand giant robots fighting monsters. Come on, people, this is not culturally complicated. <laughs> this is another film aimed at 10-year-old Do Yet you understand? another one. Okay, so, so Pacific Rim debuts on the same... What is it? Look at my diary here. So it's, it's a Friday. It debuts the same opening weekend as a film called, I believe, Grown Ups 2. Now, I don't know what the hell that is, but that sounds to me like a TV movie that, you know, my mum would watch. And she didn't watch it's many an, movies. It's an Adam Sandler film. I oh, well, Christ, Adam Sandler. Jesus Christ. Well, and the, the word on the street is that more people are interested in going to see Grown Ups 2 than... They are in seeing. Oh wait a minute! Is this the sequel to the one with Chris Rock and those other guys that go out to the? Because <laughs> that, that was quite good. <laughs> um... <laughs> oh, there we go. Oh. If, it's the, if it's the film I'm thinking about, there's this hilarious line where they uh, they 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 they're they're in this house with their like young kids, and one of the kids is looking like. And he's looking at an eight a nineteen eighties like Sony TV set. I know how old TV sets. They're not flat screens. They've got like like sixty centimeters projection out the back of the screen. Yeah, there's a brilliant quote. Which if anyone's seen them, what the hell am I doing? I forget. I forget. <laughs> <laughs> so more people are apparently interested in seeing Grown Ups too than they are in seeing Pacific Rim. Yes, and, and, what, and so what? What is the cultural outrage? It matters. It Why? Matters. What is the cult? What makes giant robots fighting Godzilla? Because that who important? needs to see how? Because which is more important: seeing a bunch of humans sitting around talking about stuff, stuff. or the possible impending apocalypse caused by giant alien kaiju that come from an interdimensional rift at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, and are fought by giant neural handshaken Yiger robots with the voice from <laughs> Portal. <laughs> Portal. Well, this this the was a triumph. I'm making a note here: huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Um, yeah. So, so that's what I have to say about that. Um, yeah, I've got more to say, and it's to do with nerd culture. I think that nerds think that just because something is Japanese, it makes it culturally sophisticated. It doesn't. Giant robots and Godzilla-type things, I'm not saying they're useless. I enjoy watching these things. I'm just saying they're not particularly sophisticated culture people. And this nerd rage about people going <laughs> to see Grown Ups 2 instead of a giant robots fighting monsters film, like one's got the cultural high ground. Oh, come on, yeah, people. Yeah, come no, on. Nobody's really. You can like it. You can like it. Oh, that's fine. Oh, they are. You, too, you listen to the way they talk about this stuff. A lot of them are. They think this is a cultural event. Like, ooh, yes. We get, well, I, the director, the interview, when they were interviewing, was saying, yes, I've got this unique opportunity to introduce a bunch of children to whatever the robots are called, to mecha culture. And I'm like, oh, really? Like, oh, great. Yeah, because 
getting 10 year old boys interested in giant fighting robots is a real uphill battle isn't it <laughs> well maybe it is in today's world of metrosexuality and mobile phones and uh... <laughs> So, and, okay, and, and let's um let's discuss some of the the Chinese are coming. You know, we've got a got a you know got a vibe with uh with clearly this is a cornerstone of Oriental culture. So this is a this is a crucial <laughs> crucial cultural event. <laughs> um, let's discuss some of the uh, and I wasn't being serious. Zo- zoological aspects of it because yes, there are a couple. I don't know whether you saw in one of the trailers, but they've got a skeleton on an aircraft carrier. I have seen that. That's the creature that attacks um, the Golden Gate Bridge, I believe. Although it's very hard to ever work out what's going on in a movie from the trailers because, of course, the, mo- the, the trailers themselves are mini-movies with their own story, and that story is often not the same as the story of the film, as, 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 as everyone will know who's ever watched the trailer. But they make it look as if the creature that attacks the Golden Gate Bridge is killed, and so therefore we have some crucial information on the biology and structure of kaiju. But then... Because that seems to be like some giant hammer-headed six-limbed jobby. And we see other creatures in the film. There's, there's one in particular that looks Clover-esque. And, of course, we spoke about Cloverfield with Blake um, just a, an episode or two ago, didn't we? So, um, I don't know, did you, there's this the bit when one of the Jaegers picks up, like, a ship to use as a bludgeoning tool. Yeah. And, and you see, like, a giant sprawling... One of the many errors of materials at scale in that, but we'll ignore that. How, explain. To, well, ships, you can't pick up a ship by one end and lift it in the air. Have you tried? <laughs> <laughs> it's happened many times. <laughs> when they get exploded and stuff, they break in half. They break, they break into bits. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah. It's like trying to, I mean, the thickness of, it's like building, a, say, a three-foot-long thing out of aluminium foil. You know, it's got some structural integrity, but if you pick it up and start throwing it around, it's just gonna twist up and rip, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah but we yeah. can we can ignore that because all the materials in these monster films are much tougher than they would be, right? Well, I mean, you I've... can't you can't build a giant robot and have it hit with things and have not have it crumple. It's not possible. I think we also see um, the, the, we see some like huge kaiju creature flying and 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 there's a bit where you see one of the jaegers one of the robots being chucked through the air all that kind of stuff i mean yeah that's i i don't i think we kind of have to might have to suspend disbelief yeah, a little you do. So. i mean yeah, you do you. oh one i find i found interesting is that they seem in i think it's in san francisco bay i think it is it's hard to tell but they've got they're dropping one and it's being held up by what looks like about 20 helicopters yeah chinooks or something yeah I mean, just the scale of the thing compared to those helicopters just looked utterly ridiculously wrong. Mm. Uh, you would have needed something more like a size of a hot air balloon to its basket of helicopters to lift something like that. Surely it looked very odd. Maybe they're very, very, very light because they're made of like some super material. I'm sure it'll all be explained. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will be. Because yeah. these movies, they always explain this stuff. Yeah. Why couldn't they just build robots that fly? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the uh, the Iron Giant. I know how it works. Yes, I mm, one's got to work. <laughs> also, well, oh god, there's not really any point in asking these things, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why is building a punching robot better than nuking these things? Uh, we have nuclear l- missiles. 
they're going to do a lot of damage. A lot you, more damage than punching them, I would say. You've seen the trailers. In order to fight monsters, we had to build monsters of our own. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't make a movie with, in order to fight monsters, we set up some nukes. It's not going to work, is it? <laughs> Plus, Amer- Americans have this, I don't know, this thing about not wanting to... In Independence Day, the, the, the movie, that is not the, the thing that just happened, there's... um. There's a line where Jeff Goldblum says, you can't let up nukes in America. He says it in a Jeff Goldblum way, which is like, um, 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 you can't, <laughs> whatever. You can't, you can't put up, you can't detonate nukes on American soil. So, like, well, we don't need to go there. But um, well, in terms of that. Well, that's but, a bit crazy since they've detonated about 300 nukes on American <laughs> soil. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and I will link to an uh, animation of all the um, open air nuclear tests in the world. Oh and it's my up, god! It's up around two thousand or something. It's huge. They they are incredible, and and obviously without sorry without, no um, sorry I'll correct myself there they're not all open air tests. A lot of the early ones were, but these no. Now not been two thousand open air tests. Our, our mutual friend Matt Waddell is is a bit of a nuclear weapons buff, and um and he showed me videos of like underground tests done in. The former Soviet Union, gigantic detonations that literally make, uh, literally make the the entire ground surface jump several meters. Just unbelievable, the magnitude of some of these, some of these events. And you've seen the the, the stuff that people used to do in terms of the the, the desert detonations. You know where th- there's one there's there's one where um, a bomb is detonated in the air over a bunch of. I don't know if they were volunteers or just, you know, army personnel or whatever, but literally over these guys to see what would happen to them. And they like literally look up at the bomb as it's exploding in the air. And, uh, and it's like, well, what happens to them afterwards? And as, as it turns out, you know, one of them died when he was 50 for some reason, but the others all lived what you would consider a normal age for people of that, that yeah. generation. Yeah, so, I mean, um, uh, obviously there can be after effects. If you don't mm. die straight away from radiation poisoning, then, you know, it's, I don't know how high the risk is, but I believe it's not like certain death a few years later or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. But I'll bet you, I'll bet you that given that they are in some way trans-dimensional creatures, they've come through some rift in space and time or something, I'll bet you kaiju are, these kaiju in the movie are immune to radiation or they're bomb proof or something because surely that yeah but if one... they're but the problem is that they're bomb proof i mean the bombs are just letting off a huge amount of kinetic energy right which is exactly the same as a giant metal <laughs> fist only nowhere near as strong sorry the metal fist is nowhere near as strong. so hmm well it makes for a less interest i think it makes for a more interesting <laughs> film <laughs> obviously it does um but i think this is i think filmmakers are in a bit of a bind at the moment because any sort of serious um conflict where it really was a matter of survival we would be using nukes all the time Mm. and they've got to find a reason of getting around that and often (laughs) sometimes they just ignore it sometimes they say we tried a nuke and it didn't work um but i think it's always a bit of a weak weak spot in Independence Day, they do detonate a nuclear They do, but bomb, it doesn't work because of the shields. It doesn't make a difference. The one over, over where is it, Dallas, I think. Uh, uh, Houston, I think, yeah. Houston, Houston. Oh, God, you know the film so well. You're so sad. I have seen Independence Day about ten <laughs> times. 
<laughs> you heard about the sequel. They've, they've given the green light for a, a sequel. Okay. They really have. Yeah. Well, be, what about yeah. a prequel? A prequel? That would be the... That would be the... Uh, the what you call it? My favourite bit in Independence Day? Guess what my favourite bit in Independence Day is? It'd be it's, Will Smith data strip. It's not... She's... Yeah, it's, it's not welcome to Earth. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the fact that the bit when... The bit when they somehow discover that they're te- that 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 Windows ninety seven is compatible with an alien spaceship <laughs> and they upload a virus or whatever they do. It wasn't it's the bit Windows, when... it was a Macintosh computer, which Mac. makes it even less likely because back then Macs <laughs> couldn't even talk to any other computer. Exactly. If you watch the little because you know they they got the aliens that are little silver things that go inside the, the biomechanical suits. The little um the little alien that sat in front of the landing dock area. Is as well as as well as operating the uh, you know the bit I mean when they, they the, the the two characters Jeff Goldblum and the president guy yeah yeah they're sitting the, like, in front the, of them. yeah they they control the aliens control the little they've got little touch screens and they control them with their little feet as well as with their hands <laughs> they've, they've got little pointy legs actually don't have feet they've just got their legs just come to like points points and it's yeah not just like they walk on like I points i didn't notice that they just well I, I, i'm always like genuinely interested in the anatomy that people obviously put into into aliens yeah and um, i've looked i didn't notice that Where yeah was it? check it out there's actually um it's the bit so so they clo- um they I, I can't remember the names of any of the characters is this in that but, scene where they they've gone into the mothership they're in the mothership they're locked in yeah, in they're that locked like in and they're looking at it and he's and they can see the aliens looking in, so they close the shutters or something. Because yeah, yeah. because of course, what would a small military vehicle have but but wind but windscreen shutter shutter things, and then um, and it's trying to override the thing to see what's going on inside the inside their little ship, and um, and yeah, you see it move its little legs as well as its little hands, and then yeah. that's just that's just before they detonate the the nuke oh, yeah. that um, that actually kills it. Um, kills that particular alien before it actually detonates. Um, yeah. Speaking of nukes, I was going to suggest we we watch something and talk about it. I watched a uh, sort of a drama called Threads. You know I know it. I know it well. I know it well. Have very you seen it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I saw it in the eighties. A very traumatic experience for my young self. Yes. Yes. Well, I think we should discuss it um, in a more uh, thorough way. Maybe next time. Mm. What do you think? Well, it's been about uh, well, well, no, twenty years or something since I've I, seen it. So I, te- I remember I, key bits. I tell you the advantage: it's on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. Okay. Um, so, I think it's quite interesting. I, it doesn't have a lot of animal life in it, but I think that a lot of it is relevant to what would happen to animal life and recovery of ecosystems and that sort of thing. Um, I remember the bit where... And also, it's just, it's actually very... Nuclear war is obviously an interesting topic anyway. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, I remember the bit where one of the main female characters is eating from a dead sheep. And I also mm. remember the bit where you see um, some stage, because it shows life happening, coming back like decades after the actual combat. I remember bits where you see people like trying to farm and that, yeah. what they're, the way they work in the land and the way they have to be covered up and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. So, but I don't. I don't remember anything about any other stuff about. Um, well, um, if you get time to watch it, um, maybe we can well, discuss that next time. That's that will be tricky. The time is time is an issue. You but can always fast yeah, forward yeah. it since you've seen it before. <laughs> watch it on fast forward. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, right. Uh, I think we should wrap it up because we're at cool. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, one thing we should we can talk about is that we our new book, Cryptozoologicon. That Cryptozoologicon. <laughs> yep. So you're talking about releasing some art. Yep. Um, a memo did just a couple of hours ago. So. Oh, really? All oh, right. Yeah. I should uh, get tweeting and stuff. Um, we have had, yeah. So, so that's cool. We so we got a new book coming out. It's going to be kind of similar, what similar format to all yesterday's. Yeah, similar say? format. Yeah. Um, and we are in the process of uh, um, preparing it right now. But we basically aim to emphasise our strengths as goes speculative biology, speculative zoology, yeah. evolutionary biology, all those things. Um, we certainly cryptids. don't on, on cryptids. cryptids on mystery animals. So we don't want to do. Uh, there's 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 obviously a lot of books about cryptozoology out there, but we don't want to do the, the same kind of stuff that everyone has beforehand, which is basically you know discuss sightings and then say what the animal most likely is. Mm. Um, but I guess we can release more information as time goes by. We've been hard at work on it for months now, haven't we? We have making good <clears throat> progress. <clears throat> yes, it looks great. Fantastic art by yourself and Memo, Memo Kozman, who again we have to you know make sure we give him appropriate credit. <laughs> Don't want him to feel he's being left out. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. Right. So where do they go to get our current book? Well, actually, I don't know. Amazon. Amazon is probably where you go to get all yesterday's. So that, that'll be all yesterday's. Currently available from all good digital retailers and the crappy ones as well. Yeah. At a very reasonable price, still getting good reviews. I looked at, I looked at still on nothing. sale, I believe. Some still on sale. The, a, Amazon is like uh, most books you see one or two reviews. There's like thirty reviews of uh, all yesterday's, which is quite impressive. Mm. Um, and there's also, if you're interested in the sort of stuff we talk about, uh, sort of stuff I do at Tetrapodology, there's a book called Tetrapodology Book One, which is still doing you know pretty well. Quite happy with the way it's going, and um, it's available from Amazon and other digital retailers. Uh, I blog at Tetrapodology, which is currently hosted at Scientific American. Um, uh, what, the show notes and where do people go to? Where do, where do people go if they want to listen to this podcast? They go to tedzoo.com, <laughs> which is an be- unbelievably good and short um, domain name, which we managed to get, huh? It is. And th- we have loads of donations since last time. We have a browning and cash, really. The Demi Moore scene and whatever oh, that's sorry. sorry, we actually have. We've had two donations since last yes! time which is very nice so that's paid for hosting and a little bit of profit darren and, and i can now have a beer each on that awesome awesome <laughs> maybe a bit more actually yep it's going very well that's um, good yes yeah, so, so thanks so, for th- the donations thank yeah thank you to them and thank you to the people that have donated in the past because i don't think we've uh, said thank you to them they know who they are yeah 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 but to the people in the future you know please donate to the podcast people <laughs> it needs an operation to stay on topic. You, you don't need to talk in your normal voice, John. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I tweet at, at good <laughs> shot, good shot, Jensen. One more pass coming round. One more cable out. Let it go. Cable attach. <laughs> Tet Zoo. <laughs> just, just found a hilarious parody of that online. <laughs> Um, okay, <laughs> you're at that pet zoo. Um, you can go to my website at johnconway.co where you can buy prints again. Yay! Yay. Excellent. Um, many thanks to Gareth Monger. 
Yes. I think that's how you <laughs> say it. Don't say it, it Sorry, like Gareth. How do you say it? Gareth Monger. <laughs> there you go. Sounds like you're mocking him otherwise. <laughs> Gaffer Mondo on the Twitters. Gaffer Mondo. Yes. He Have works, you seen at, the... a pr- he works <laughs> at the print shop, Grantham's, and he's been very helpful in working with my uh, naughty little um, automated ordering system. And we've printed and shipped several orders successfully. Yay. So thanks to him. Um, you can follow me at the Twitters at Terrors. He means Nick the Terrors. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. Um, is that it? Is that it? Uh, 